Now I trust you have all heard the saying, don't trust a skinny chef. Uh, it's a funny saying, but there's something to that, isn't there? When I go to a restaurant and I see the chef, you know, and when I see that he has some meat on his bones, I feel like I'm in for a good treat. But when I see a chef that is really skinny, it makes me wonder, has he spent more time in the gym and in front of a mirror rather than working on his craft? Uh, I like going to a restaurant and seeing a chef with some heft. Uh, it makes me feel like he's really been working on his craft. Now, similarly, do you ever take parenting advice from someone who has no children? Uh, you don't, do you? Or would you hire as your tour guide of a foreign city someone who has never been there and who doesn't speak the language? Of course not. It's just so obvious. So why would you ever listen to God about how to live your life? What does the infinitely powerful being even know about suffering? Well, God became man. And Jesus, choosing to live his life the right way, led, it, led to his suffering and his death. Jesus knows better than most how hard it is to live well. And then, of course, there is Paul. He suffered much uh, for the Lord. And so he knows better than most the intense pressure that Christians face in a world that is hostile to the Lord and to his kingdom. And of course, you remember that Paul wrote Ephesians, this letter, during his two-year imprisonment in Rome. He was imprisoned for the sake of Jesus and for his gospel. That is to say, uh, Paul is very well positioned to serve us and equip us how to understand both the pressures that we face in this world and how to stand firm as believers against opposition and hardship. And so what is it that this loving pastor, he who is well-versed in the difficulties of the Christian life, what is it that he is telling the Ephesian believers to equip them, to serve them. And this morning, we are going to see three things. First is the Father's blessings, the Father's blessings. Now, you may be familiar uh, that Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14 is often described as one long sentence with over 200 Words And uh, there are some technical reasons why people say that, and we will get into some of the details in the weeks following. But it is true. Uh, there is a way of looking at this passage, and it does appear to be one long sentence with 200 words, over 200 words. It's so unwieldy to translate that you can't really faithfully represent that structure in English. So you may have noticed that the passage that we read, it's broken up into smaller sections. Uh, but it seems to me that it's not very helpful to analyze 
the first century Greek, of course, Ephesians was written in first century Greek language. It's not very helpful to analyze the first century Greek behind this letter according to modern English literature conventions. You know, um, uh, elegant English demands shorter sentences. Uh, shorter sentences with clearly defined subject, verb, and object, and uh, the elements of style uh, demand the use of good punctuation marks. That, uh, those are the conventions of modern English literature. Uh, but first century Greek speakers were trained to convey their meaning to their hearers by careful choice of words and word arrangements. And they were trained um, very carefully where to take pause and to take pause for effect and where to take breath. And of course, first century Greek society was an oral culture. Communication was done orally, not through written literature. And so when we look at this passage uh, against the conventions of the first century Greek language, it turns out there is actually quite a bit of materials from the first century where the first century uh, uh, people themselves talk about what makes for stylish Greek language. And when we look at Paul's writings against such materials, we realize that the verses uh, 3 to 14 is more like what we understand as a paragraph. And this paragraph is broken up into nine distinct logical units. And verse 3 is the first such logical unit. And all of the nine units in this paragraph, they have a same pattern. They each begin with some statement about what God has done, and it ends with the phrase, in Christ, or an equivalent Phrase. Now, you may have noticed in verse 3, uh, the phrase in Christ appears in the middle of the sentence, but in the Greek, it's at the very end. So all of the nine units, uh, they have a, a, a similar pattern. They begin with the statement about what God has done, and it ends with the phrase either in Christ, through Christ, in Him, etc., equivalent phrases. And these Nine logical units don't always follow the verse division that we have in our Bibles. So today we are looking at just verse 3. In the weeks to come, we may look at one verse or a few more verses, but we will be following those logical divisions in this paragraph. And so with that in mind, we look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, this verse is really remarkable. It's remarkable because we know about Paul's hardships, the difficult things that he faced and endured in the service of his Lord. And we know that even as he is writing this letter, he is imprisoned. And yet, what do we hear from him? We hear praise, doxology, 
worship. And it's not mere perfunctory or superficial going through the motions, oh, praise God. When you read through this passage, there's an exuberance, there's joy, there's sincerity in Paul's praise. That's what's remarkable about this verse to begin with. And I think that already tells us something really important. Worship or praising God is the often neglected spiritual resource when life gets hard. You see, when we are hard-pressed, when we face trials and difficulties, these hard circumstances have a way of closing our hearts and our ears to God's truth. And it so happens that when we are beset with many difficulties and hardships in life, we sometimes stop reading the word and we stop listening. But what happens when the truth is shut out from our heart, that space does not remain empty. When we become closed off to God's truth, when we don't read, when we don't remember who God is and His truth, that space that truth once occupied is filled as half-truths and lies rush in to fill that void. And the lies and the half-truths that rush in leave us unable to respond to life's pressures with wisdom. And that's why worship and praise is a spiritual resource that enables us to face life's many hardships. And so Paul begins with a praise, and doing so, he teaches us to do the same. So Paul says, blessed be the God. And to bless God uh, means to speak well of him. Uh, The word is eulogia. It's the word from which we get eulogy. You know, we are used to giving eulogies at memorial services. But uh, it means really to speak well of God. Why? Paul tells us, Blessed be the God who, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. What blessing? And this is why we read verses uh, 3 to 14. In verses 4 and 11, we read about the blessing of election. In verse 5, we read about the blessing of adoption. In verse 7, we read about the blessing of redemption and forgiveness of sins. In verse 9, we read about the blessing of knowing God's will, and so on and so forth. And so that's why Paul is praising God, because of the rich blessings that he has blessed us. And notice what Paul says. He doesn't say, hang in there, someday these blessings will be yours. But rather, he says, blessed be the God who has blessed us in Christ. These blessings are already ours. And it is as we speak well of him, amidst our trials and hardships, as we bless God, as we acknowledge Him to be the good and gracious and loving giver, as we give glory to Him 
for being the source of every precious blessing that we will find the resource, the strength, the ability to face life's hardship, to not only understand the pressures in this world, but also to thrive in this world. So that's the first thing that this pastor, Paul, is telling and showing the Ephesian believers, the Father's blessings. Secondly, the Son's mediation, the Son's mediation. So Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, when the New Testament calls God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is doing something very specific. When the New Testament calls God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is drawing attention to the fact that Jesus submitted to the Father in the discharge of his office as our Savior. And that his ministry as our mediator has made God our Father. That's really the rich theological background when the New Testament calls God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus co-equal with God in glory, for the sake of our salvation, submitted himself to his Father. And through that mediation and the work of redemption, he has made God and his Father to be our God and our Father too. And so what Paul is telling us is that every precious blessing, some of the blessings that we just read, uh, adoption, election, knowing God's will, and so on and so forth. He's telling us that every precious blessing is ours through Jesus Christ, who died and rose. And Jesus suffered and died and rose with the goal of lavishing unto every believer blessing upon blessing from his Father. And so you have, I'm sure, realized and recognized how in Christ, that phrase in Christ or its equivalent appears repeatedly in this passage. In Christ, through Christ, in Him. These are all equivalent phrases where Paul is drawing our attention to the fact that the Father is the giver of every precious blessing and the place where you find those blessings is only one place. In Christ. So remember how Christians, Paul said, are faithful in Christ Jesus, verse 2. In verse 3, Paul tells us, God has blessed us in Christ. In verse 4, God chose us in Him. In verse 5, God adopted us as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, he did all this to the praise of his glorious grace in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. And of course, we can go on and on. In Christ alone. In Christ alone. We have nothing apart from Christ. We have everything 
in Christ. Now, knowing this, this has many important implications, both for ministry of the church and our lives. If it is true, as Paul says, that we have nothing apart from Jesus who suffered and died and rose, and we have everything in Jesus who suffered and died and rose, then it will shape the ministry of the church in a profound way. You know, so often church ministries and sermons end up being good advices. We don't proclaim good advices. We proclaim good news of what Jesus has done. And in our lives, too, we need to be intentional and deliberate whether we are seeking all our blessings in Christ or apart from Christ. And this is really important because, as you well know, our culture is very hostile to historical and orthodox Christianity. And then there is what Jesus himself said. For example, in Luke chapter 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And from the fact that we live in a time and a place where we face a lot of hostility and opposition from the culture and people that are hostile to our Lord and to his truths, and from the fact that Jesus himself said that unless you take up your cross, unless you deny yourself, unless you die, you cannot be my disciple. From these things, it is possible to think that the Christian life is all of loss and sacrifice. Now, it is true, we do lose as the world considers loss, and we do sacrifice. But what makes them bearable and what makes them even joyful is the fact that God has blessed us infinitely more in Christ than we will ever lose in this world. And so ask yourself this question, how important was this for the believers in Ephesus where the idol makers incited a riot against the believers for being God's people? for following Jesus. How important was it for them to hear, yes, following Christ cannot be done in any other way than through self-denial and by taking up your cross and following Jesus, if necessary, even to death, and yet to hear and be reminded that God has blessed them infinitely more in Christ than they will ever lose. And how important for, is it for you and for me to hear in this place and in this time where fidelity, where loyalty to Jesus is treated as a liability and not a privilege. You and I also need to hear this, that God has blessed us more, infinitely more in Jesus than we will ever lose following Jesus. You know, when you are in an unfamiliar, strange part of town, or let's say you are hiking in bear country, you mind your surroundings, don't you? You are hyper-vigilant and alert to what's going on around you. Well, we have to mind our surroundings. And what are our surroundings? One, 
We are in a culture that is hostile to the gospel, but more importantly, mind your surroundings. You are in Christ. That's your surrounding. That's where you are in Christ. And that brings us thirdly and lastly to the Spirit's guarantee. To the Spirit's guarantee. Again, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You know, that word spiritual, uh, I'm not a very big fan of it. (laughs) In that, in our culture, that word spiritual means almost nothing. The way that people use that word spiritual, it's so vague and it's so undefined. And what people mean by spiritual is that undefined feeling about something intangible. You know, so for example, you might people describe themselves, you know, I'm spiritual but not religious. What in the world do you even mean by that? So in our culture and in our times, the word spiritual really has no uh, solid, uh, meaningful sense behind it. Or uh, people use the word spiritual as a way of a contrast. So people might say, you know, I'll be, I guess I better be content with the spiritual blessing of joy since God hasn't given me the material blessing of money. So when we use the word spiritual in our time and place, it's either so vague as to be meaningless or it's meant as a contrast between something real, something tangible versus something you know you can't touch, something which is a second best. But that's not what Paul means. You see, when Paul says spiritual in his letters, most always Paul means of the Holy Spirit, pertaining to the Holy Spirit, with respect to the Holy Spirit. So that's Paul's pattern of using the word spiritual. And that sense is confirmed when we realize that the first century Greek speakers were trained and they often began and ended their speech with their same idea for emphasis. So in verse 3, Paul says um, that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then when you look at verses 13 and 14, Paul says, in him, in Christ, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what what Paul means to tell us is this. The Father is the source of every precious blessing. And the only place where you find the blessings are in Christ. And Father's blessings, which are ours in Christ, are indeed made real, are effected, are become ours through the gift of the Holy Spirit, through the presence, through the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, by the way, do you see how 
not only doxological but also trinitarian. Paul's opening sentence here is, and it's remarkable because the church at Ephesus was a relatively young church. And today we tend to view these things, Trinity, for example, as something that's only reserved for mature, seasoned believers. But this is what Paul gives to the brand new Christians. To let them know that the various blessings that we met, we we mentioned above, election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, knowing God's will. All of these things are the works of the Spirit of Christ in us. And the gift of the Spirit places us in the heavenly places. Um, I also am not a big fan of the way people talk about heaven. Uh, it seems to me that when people talk about heaven, it usually means something not physical, something therefore not as real as what we experience here. And when people talk about heaven, it's a place of passivity where nothing happens, where everything comes to an end and stops. But when Paul mentions that the gift of the Spirit places us in the heavenly places, uh, what he's getting at is, for example... Uh, is found in Colossians 1.13. There Paul says, He, Jesus, uh, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So when Paul talks about the heavenly places, is it, it's in contrast uh, to the earthly places where there is sin, brokenness, rebellion, And the heavenly places is where Jesus reigns in his resurrection power. His kingdom has come. All is renewed. All that is broken is healed. And what Paul is telling us is that through the gift of the Spirit, we have a place in that kingdom of Christ, that eschatological kingdom of Christ. The Spirit of Christ in the believer, the Spirit of Christ in you, is what links you to that new creation. One day, God will bring this present age and creation to an end. And this world, rebelling against God and ruined by sin, this world where mankind builds monuments to himself, this world has an expiration date on it. But you and I, we are in this world, but not of it. And God has set us apart for his son and for his kingdom. And he has given us his spirit as a down payment and if so uh, we have the resources to understand the pressures of this world and we have the resources to resist its threats and demands the pressures the hardships 
the loss that we suffer in this world, the demands and the threats. You know, they are but the last breaths of a dying world. It's horrific. And it is sad. But that's all it is. The last breaths of a dying world. And it will not rule over us. So loved ones, would you mind your surroundings? Remember where you are. Yes, you are in the world. But more importantly, you are in Christ. And you already are in the heavenlies. In his healed and renewed new creation where Jesus reigns with power and glory. That's where you are today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your instructions today, for equipping us with these precious truths and your precious gifts that we may not cower, not be terrified as we face the many pressures of this world, but that we may understand them correctly and remember and be strengthened by the rich and amazing blessings you have bestowed upon us. So Lord, help us to remember that whatever the world tells us we are, it doesn't matter, for we are in Christ and we are in his kingdom. Thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.